Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is the show that finds anarchism, cooperation, mutual aid, non-domination in your everyday life. One of the topics I dealt with from the very beginning, at least from the Tolkien episode, which was the second episode of the show, was the way that higher education had some anarchistic practices that had endured into our present day. This is an argument made by Peter Kropotkin, the premier anarchist theorist. And we can see it when we look at Tolkien. Tolkien, remember, was part of a college. College is a word that comes from the same root as collegial, meaning a group of people working together without hierarchy. His actual title was fellow. If you are a fellow, that means fraternity. It's right there in the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. So if your title is, as Tolkien was, fellow of Merton College, that's got this cooperative anarchistic idea twice in the term fellow and in the term college. Lately, however, colleges have been taken over. They have been taken over by what uh, David Graeber calls managerial feudalism. It can also be called audit culture. It can be called the profit motive. It can be called efficiency. Whatever you want to call it, it is the enemy of this sort of anarchistic way of having a college or having a university. And I'm interviewing a number of guests about the problems that this has created in higher education. The first one is today. I'm interviewing William DeRizowitz today, author of the book, Excellent Sheep. After the theme music, I will introduce Bill more fully and you can hear the interview. I'm also putting his most famous article, Don't Send Your Kid to the Ivy League, in the show notes as a link. Uh, my guest today is Dr. William Derezowitz. Did, did I pronounce that right? Yes, you did. Okay. Um, instead of a list of his accomplishments, which are many, you can Google him. Uh, I want to talk about what he meant to me and this podcast. Um, so I taught at two schools, the South Carolina Governor's School for Science and Math and the North Carolina School of Science and Math that were filled with excellent sheep. Excellent sheep is a term coined by my guest or more precisely one of his students for the students who are dedicated to uh, high achievement, high test scoring, AP test taking, Ivy League attending, hashtag winning students. Their real education is not in economics or science or literature, God forbid. It's in achievement, success, test taking, again, winning. My role in the classroom changed when a friend of mine suggested that I start teaching Bill's article about how damaging the system was to the souls of the students. Since that suggestion, I opened or closed every single one of my year-long classes with Bill's article. It was his opposition to the narrow idea of merit rather than a deeper sense of learning that put me on the path that led to me leaving my job and starting this podcast. Just like Bill, I left my perch in the meritocracy by semi-mutual consent. And just like Bill, I am now a creative entrepreneur. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks. Uh, thanks for that introduction. It's really, it's moving to me to hear that the my work has been so meaningful, not only to you, but to your students. I mean, that's really uh, why, I, why I write. Uh, well, it, it was exceptionally meaningful it, with, with, within the class discussion, certainly. In fact, in my, in my final semester, as I had sort of, uh, I had my leg half out the door, I in fact taught uh, a class, kind of an independent study thing on the meritocracy. Um, I believe we started with your article. We read 
M Michael Young, I think we read some mm. excerpts from Malcolm, Malcolm Harris, some Nicholas mm -hmm. Lehman. We ended mm. with bullshit jobs, which I'm going to ask you about at, yeah. at some point. And I, it was the most, I mean, we had Zoom, so we were able to have as many students who wanted to come as, as were able. And my understanding is it was the largest class ever, ever taught wow. in the history of the school. Now there was yeah. these forums, they don't have grading, but the students were so hungry for this knowledge and they loved it. And then now one of them's at Yale and one of them is at Princeton and one of them is at MIT and several are right. at Duke. So they said, oh yes, it's true. The meritocracy is terrible. And will you please write me a letter to Yale? So I don't yeah. It, it matters to them intellectually and emotionally, but I don't think they see a way out of the meritocratic trap. Well, that's the thing. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not sincere. I think there's probably a, a very wide range of sincerity or maybe more uh, accurately, a degree to which they take it in, the depth to which they take it in. But as you said, they probably just feel like no, there's no alternative. And I, I, I mean, I think a lot of parents feel this way. A lot of parents, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of parents groups as well, usually at uh, fa uh, fancy high schools or an association with fancy high schools. And I mean, the parents self-select. They only come to me if they know, if they feel that there's a problem with what's happening with their kids. But they also feel uh, trapped in this dilemma. You know, if I don't do this, what's going to become of me? Now, I do think that there are alternatives. But first of all, I think the space for those alternatives closes every time inequality gets wider. Because if we are really being divided into a society of a few winners and a lot of losers, I don't mean losers in the Donald Trump sense, but people who've just who've lost this competitive game, often because the odds were stacked against them to begin with, if there's no space in the middle, if there's no middle class, then it's hard to make an argument not to try to become one of the winners. And then also, I always stress to them that, yes, there's room, but it's going to involve trade-offs. You are going to have to give up, most likely, some degree of wealth, some degree of status, some degree of prestige. Just realize that you're already making a trade-off by jumping on the treadmill or, or more likely staying on the treadmill. And that maybe what you're giving up is the chance to live the life that feels like it's the life that you should be leading, which is a big thing to give up. Yeah, I mean, tying into that again from my own experience, I don't want this interview to be about my no. own experience, but I, you know, I got my PhD at UNC um, after attending uh, honors college at the University of South Carolina, which is indeed, I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but you've mentioned that there are these honors colleges that provide this. I've been to the one at Clemson. Yes. Oh, well, I mean, that's fine too, I guess. <laughs> uh, but um, it, the, the one at South Carolina really is, is excellent. And I got this amazing education. I got my PhD at UNC and then had, was teaching at these elite high schools. And from my perspective, I had, I had utterly failed. You know, I didn't, I didn't get my PhD at Chicago or Hopkins, which were my two goals. I ended up Pretty, most half my dissertation committee was a, was a Hopkins committee. I, I very much fit my work in that space. And then I was teaching at this high school, a high school that paid me more than most of the, you know, you know, I was making less than I would have made at UNC, but more than I would have made at, you know, UNC Wilmington. And I had access to the best students 
in, in the world. I mean, these students can go anywhere and do go anywhere. And I realized that the students, I think, thought that I was in some ways a meritocratic winner. And they were like, look at you. How are you inveighing against the meritocracy? You're a winner. And I'm like, I went to a state school and I teach at a high school. In the, in the, in the standards of the meritocracy, I am a huge loser. But I think that's so much of it is about anxiety. And I, I mean, I can't speak from experience, but I assume half the people at Yale wish they were at Harvard or, or, or something like that. Certainly, I get the sense at Duke that everyone at Duke wishes they were at Harvard or Yale. Right, right. There are plenty of kids at Yale who, 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 who wanted to get into Harvard, but, but that's right. I mean, almost anywhere you are, um, uh, no matter how high up the ladder you go, it's full of people who want to be higher. And that's not just true of college students. That continues to be true throughout life. I mean, the problem with this, I mean, we talked about winners and losers, and I meant that in an economic sense, but in a psychological sense, there really are no winners. Because, I mean, the psychology of this, and I talk about this in Excellent Sheep, and it really, my discussion rests heavily on Alice Miller's classic, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, the whole psychological dynamic rests on this oscillation between uh, grandiosity and objection. You know, you get an A and you feel like you're the greatest person in the world and deserving of more than anybody else. There's this tremendous inflation of ego. And then next time you get an A minus and suddenly your life is over. And people feel this way. And even I felt this way when I was in high school and college. Actually, for much longer than that, come to think of it. I mean, really, it becomes a it becomes something that I'm not sure you're ever able to extirpate. I compare it in the book to being, it's like being an alcoholic, you know, and you can be an AA and you should be, and you can control your impulses that way. But at best, you're, you're a dry alcoholic. You're a non-drinking alcoholic. Yeah, there's, there's a concept um, in, it, it gets talked about some in sort of economic literature, but especially it comes up in science fiction a lot called prestige economics. Um, are you familiar with this term, I'm prestige not, economics? No. Um, so uh, my favorite explanation of it comes from this guy, Manu Sadia in his book, uh, Treconomics, which he says, you know, what are all these people doing in, on, on, on Star Trek on the Enterprise? They are all, to get to, they talk about it in Star Trek Next Generation, to get into Starfleet Academy, you have to have gone through just the most rigorous training available. Almost no one gets to be on the enterprise. We are watching the best of the best. And then it's revealed. And we see people have, have breakdowns and get kicked out of the academy because they're taking risks and sorts of things. Like it's driving these people to destruction. And it's also revealed that in Star Trek, there's enough money and resources for everyone to do whatever they want. There's no, mm -hmm. it's a post-scarcity mm -hmm. economy, mm -hmm. but there are mm -hmm. still, as you say, winners and losers, mm. even without the economics, there are prestige winners and losers. And so everyone can eat and everyone can be happy and no one seems to be happy unless they're in Star Trek or rather in Starfleet. The show never even shows you these these right. people, they are not considered right. worthy. Like the 99.99% right. of the people who live in this fictional universe are never shown. The camera has no interest in them because they did right. not go to right. the Starfleet equivalent of they're, Harvard. They're and that seems like, yeah, we could, we could fix scarcity and just have excellent sheep all, all over again. Well, I mean, look, the truth is that uh, 
it, it makes psychological sense, right? If you if you if other needs are removed, if you're already a certain way up the hierarchy of needs, that other needs will develop. Um, I also think, uh, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think that um, I, I'm not against certain kinds of status competition. I'm not against competition for excellence in particular fields. And I think that, you know, I, I've been thinking about this because when people, when, when I, or when people talk about universal basic income and robust social safety net, which I believe in, I don't think that anyone should want for basic necessities. And then people sometimes on the right or the center will say, well, then no one's going to work. And I think, look, there may be some people that won't, that may well be true. Of course, there are people who aren't working now, some by choice, some not by choice, but I do think that the, the net, there is a natural desire to distinguish oneself in the eyes of others. It may be good or may be bad. I don't think it's eradicable, but it can also make for excellence. And, and I think we do want excellence. The question is, how do we define it? How do we prepare people to achieve it? And what rewards do we offer for it? Right? I mean, and right now, I think all those three, three of those things are really screwed up. Yeah, I would say, you know, I've, I've, I've traveled on a journey from a place that I probably would have more or less agreed with you a few years ago. And then I've, you know, I've come out on a, on a more left-wing side. I mean, anarchism is in the, is in the, I mean, I've, I was given Graeber yeah. by a political theory professor and I just said, look, who is this guy? What an idiot. Mm -hmm. He doesn't understand policy. I hate Larry Summers, but we need people like Larry Summers in the government. And boy, have I come a, lo a long way from that, from that position eight years ago. I'm with you in that it seems like excellence, striving, in any of those things are, are good. I wouldn't wanna live in a world without them. I'm also with you that of course that should be unchanged from the ability to survive, to eat, to live, to have shelter. That seems, right. that seems easy enough. And then how you achieve that through the political process is something I don't like talking about because I have come to loathe the political process. I have, I have students you know, who text me every day like, Hey, did you see what happened in the House subcommittee? Right. And my response is that's please stop looking at the House subcommittee. Right. There's there's nothing for you there. The bill is going to be passed or it isn't. And then it the Supreme Court may weigh in and then the new president may change the regulation. So you don't need to look that much at the right. go protest by all means, but don't be on Politico reading what right. happened in the House subcommittee this morning. Right. Right. But I'm getting to my point of disagreement. Yes. <laughs> I, I believe with Dwight McDonald that we just need multiple publics and as many different definitions of excellence as possible. I mean, some people will strive for excellence all by themselves and may or may not achieve it. But when I, when I hear what you say in terms of we, the question is how we define it. Sure, but I don't want it defined by a community of 400 million or a community of 9 billion. I would be happy with excellence mm -hmm. being defined by a community of of five, maybe they get to, you know, maybe they get together and they're just a string quartet, I guess that's four, and they're striving for excellence for themselves. That's, that seems to me enough impetus to success and greatness. And when the other cultures find out, the other publics, I like this term rather than subculture, like alternate publics, it's, it's, it's Dwight McDonald's term, it's not mine. This will bleed into the other publics. And then if eventually you reach to the, the, the top of the confederation of publics and you don't like it, you can just go home to your house that you're not worried about 
losing. I mean, that's my somewhat somewhat fanciful vision as opposed to something like Star Trek. In Star Trek, again, they talk about all the time, oh, there's only one seat on the flagship. If you are not the captain of the Enterprise, even all the other captains are miserable that they are not captain of the Enterprise. And I want to avoid, at least want all the captains to be happy, at least, rather than all just wanting the one position, which it feels like we could create, depending on how we define excellence, depending on if we want a a sort of singular definition of excellence. That's what I worry about. Yeah, I mean, that all makes sense. I mean, I'm, I think I'm thinking in terms of um, uh, e- each endeavor onto itself. You know, I think people are going to write poetry and I think the poetry community will constitute itself. It may not be all one community and there's certainly local art scenes and local poetry scenes. But I think, you know, we, li- we do live in an age of mass communication. Uh, so to a certain extent, they all funnel into one large community. Um, in the case of the poetry community, mostly composed of other poets, right? which is fine. But I think there will naturally be competition for distinction. I mean, I think especially among poets, <laughs> yes. precisely because the, the economic rewards are so small. And I don't think that that's bad. I think that that uh, leads to a striving for excellence. Now, how excellence is defined uh, is I think will also be a product of the community and it's also going to be changing. And maybe what people in the poetry community think is great poetry, I will think is terrible poetry, but that's, <laughs> that's their business and their prerogative. And I think part of the striving for excellence, especially in creative fields, uh, is also a striving to define excellence, to redefine excellence. It's a struggle over what it means. The problem to me now is especially, you know, with our excellent sheep and with the elite education system is that I don't see it, uh, the, the excellence they talk about, it, I don't see it being about this kind of excellence of craftsmanship at all. No, it's not. It's an excellence that's defined through these, uh, these metrics that are increasingly distant from, from real excellence. It's, you know, it's about hoop jumping and test scores and who can play the game of, of uh, schmoozing the teachers and getting you know, and networking, and of course, tremendous advantages of birth and wealth and the connections of your parents and the connections of the people you go to college with and so forth. And, and I think that we have a, a very great heap of mediocrity. Uh, I mean, there's still people who achieve excellence, but I mean, as I say in the book, in the last chapter or two, you know, I've described the, the, the system of elite education, I've described the students and the students it produces. And then I say, hey, now let's take a look at our leadership class over the last 20 or 30 years. (laughs) And they have all the same characteristics because of course they've been produced by this system. And I think, you know, they are not characteristics of excellence. They're characteristics of self-protection, risk aversion, self-dealing, and a lot of mediocrity. Yeah, and and this is why, and I think you, um, I think I heard you talk about this as an interview. This is why Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in their very different ways, also, and to be to be clear, um, I am I like Bernie Sanders. I do not like Donald Trump. I don't. I assume that wasn't in doubt, but I, I guess I should make sure to say. Yeah, that. yeah, I just did. <laughs> um, but they but they do both represent a a, a barbaric yawp against the elite domination. And my and my project is for my few hundreds of listeners is trying to harness that energy. Um, 
yeah. into a into a project of making the world a better place. Which I'm not saying that that Bernie Sanders isn't doing that, but I also see just enormous energy from some huge bulk of the population for something for something different. And insofar as insofar as the people on the left or the left liberals or the technocrats or whatever get get in bed with the Fortune 500 CEOs and get them to institute diversity policies and just in general seem to be in league with the billionaires. It seems to me whatever populist energy there is will go to the right. And I, I didn't intend to talk politics uh, with you necessarily, but that's my, that's my political fear is that Bernie Sanders becomes uh, Elizabeth Warren, becomes Kamala Harris, becomes <laughs> Barack Obama or, or Hillary Clinton, right? And, and along the way loses support among whatever you want to call them, people. <laughs> Whereas, right. you know, uh, Donald Trump or a future version of Donald Trump starts looking more like, you know, the, the, the men in Europe in the 20s and, and 30s. And every time I um, hear people, I, I did an episode on vaccine mandates and I am, you know, against the vaccine mandate for all sorts of reasons, but mostly because it doesn't seem like it's going to work. And it, if, if you really work to do a vaccine mandate, you are going to expand policing powers. And if you do it through jobs, you're going to have hungry people. And they're going to say the left-wing politicians want me starving and not to have a job. And that just seems to me a real, a real losing play. And I had a bunch of people email me, Bill, and say, I totally agree with you on this vaccine mandate thing, but I can't say this. You know, I can't say this at work. I can't say this to my friends. Um, and that's, that's, that scares me. Yeah. I, I, you know, Excellent Sheep came out in 2014. Uh, I guess I finished it in 2013. I felt then that some kind of reckoning was coming. Um, I won't go into the story, but I had a very unpleasant experience at Harvard when I was touring the book. Um, and I remember it ending by me screaming at us, uh, the few people who were left, you know, the sky's falling <laughs> and none of you can see it. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what that was going to mean. Right. But when Trump came along, it seemed like that's what it turned out to have meant. Um, I, uh, I'm not actually sure that the, um, that the populist anger is about the domination of the elite. I mean, that's probably part of it. But I think that if we, ha if we, had, a if we had a dominating elite that was more open to rising talent, that wasn't openly disdainful of everybody else, and that was competent, meaning that it was running a country where things were getting better for most people, which is what we had. I mean, before we had meritocracy, we had the WASP aristocracy. And, you know, it, it uh, I mean, I'm sure there was resistance to its rule and resentment of its rule. I'm not, an, you know, steeped in American history, but I don't, I, I think, it only was with the depression the, and, and which, which sort of was the moment of, of great failure and crisis of that elite that I think uh, its right to rule started to be challenged and started to be broken down, including by members of that elite. And I talk about this in the book too. It's my big, my big source there is uh, 
E. Digby Baltzell's classic, The Protestant Establishment, which is the book that put the word, the term WASP in circulation. It didn't invent the term, but it put it in circulation. Came out in 64, and he describes this. Uh, the, and, and, you know, we, we had people from within that WASP aristocracy begin FDR, uh, Kingman Brewster, who was the president of Yale in the 60s, other lesser known people, you know, who self overcame. And it was a tremendous act of public service and of self knowledge. And they earned the hatred and enmity of their own class. You know, FDR, right? I welcome their right <laughs> malefactors of great wealth. Um, I don't see that happening with this, arist with this, with this ruling class. I don't see this self overcoming. I don't see that level of self knowledge or of self sacrifice. I, yeah. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. Well, I, I'm, I'm quite happy with you to tie that into education. So, um, uh, a well-known history podcaster named Mike Duncan just came out with a new uh, biography of the Marquis de Lafayette, and he pointed out that for the French aristocracy in the 18th century, they had the classic liberal education, and that meant, you know, Seneca, um, and that meant also Cicero, and that meant the Gracchi brothers, and all sorts of people who for one thing, you know, so I, I mentioned Seneca because I, I mean, I find people like Seneca and Montaigne and that whole tradition incredibly rich and rewarding in terms of building a soul. I'm, I'm, I'm with you that absolutely you can, you can do it on a college campus, and that's maybe the best place to do it on a college campus if if it's the right college campus. But you can also do it autodidactically, and and people like Seneca can help you do that. But someone like Cicero is just going to write pages and pages and pages, the Republic must be defended and, and tyranny must be defeated. And Mike Duncan talks about the irony of, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette reading this text that says tyranny must be defeated and, and it's the required text. And it's the required text for the Bourbons and the Orleans mm -hmm. and for everyone in, in that aristocracy. So maybe, I mean, you and I, uh, people like you and I, Eng English professors, trained English professors, maybe we get dinged for, um, believing in this kind of enlightenment building too much. But I feel like, you know, there are students who I give uh, Emerson to, um, or, you know, Emily Dickinson or, or, or Whitman or Thoreau or Seneca, and they do have the kind of awakening that would allow them to overcome this mm -hmm. meritocratic programming. But mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't at Yale. I don't get the sense that they are getting it other places. And I don't, I also think it's really hard, this goes back to something else, it's really hard to show students the, the utility of that. The other terrifying thing, maybe I should, um, do you, I just thought of something else, but do you like to go or am I, am I eating up all the oxygen? Oh, yeah, maybe I should just respond. Um, listen, I, I never claim that if you read the, the Western classics, you're gonna become a good person or you're gonna become a fighter for justice. I don't say that. <laughs> Um, I do think that that can happen. Yes. I think they make you, what I do say in the book is that they make you more aware, more self-aware and therefore freer. And maybe that will also mean that it make, they make you better. Um, but, and then all, and, and, I, and I think there, there's a whole separate reason to read them, which is that they are the intellectual and cultural foundation of the world that we live in. 
if you want to understand American government, you have to do more than just follow today's subcommittee hearings. You have to understand the philosophical roots of it. There are so many other factors, though, that will play into whether someone becomes, quote unquote, a good person or steps off the meritocratic conveyor belt. <laughs> so, you know, reading books by, by themselves, by itself, is not going to be enough. But I do think it's a very useful part of it. Yeah, I and certainly... I- don't want to suggest that you had said that if, pe- if people... No, no, I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the caricatured position, yes. unfortunately. And you still hear people write about this, you know. Well, what about the Nazis? You know, they listen to classical music. <laughs> okay. And maybe, you know, maybe there are people who have said that, you know, great art makes you better. I mean, sort of a Victorian position. But... <laughs> I don't hear a lot of people being stupid enough to say that, and I certainly don't. <laughs> no, you, you, you do not, and I don't think people but there are, are other ways. But there are other ways to frame the value of humanistic learning, as I, I've just tried to do. Yeah, I think you have, and I think it is a tool for self-formation, and I think it can also open people up to the idea of self-formation. I think in the, mm-hmm. it, can, it, it certainly is a tool if you're going to use it, and it can open you up to self-formation, but also people can get A's in a class on the American Transcendentalist and never, yeah. and never do any self-formation. I don't or they can, that's they not can do self-formation and then still take a job on Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. Listen, I, I don't think any of this stuff is easy. And I don't think that we should be cynical, especially about young people who are trying to figure stuff out and make their way in the world with, unfortunately, very limited information about, I suppose that's inevitable when you're young. Yeah, I don't, uh, in, you know, uh, if I sounded at the beginning of this conversation like I was critiquing the students who read the meritocracy book and still went to Yale, well, no, okay, no, no. A, few, a few of them I am, like, and they know who they, they, know who they are. Um, okay. but, but, for the, but for the most part, no, I'm not, because they do have limited information. But much more importantly, this is a, this is a hard world to, to live in um, right now, financially, economically, and psychologically, and as you say, uh, an, an Ivy League degree makes that e- easier. I, I, wanted, easier. I wanted to go to the University of South Carolina for a lot of reasons. I love the Honors College. I was a third generation student. They gave me a huge scholarship. I didn't try to get into any of the elite schools as an undergrad. And um, when I got to UNC, almost all of my you know fellow members of my grad program had gone to at least more elite schools, at least places like UNC, if not, if not higher up the chain. And it always, you know, left me thinking, oh, I, I, I made a mistake. I should have applied to all 17 of the top schools. And then maybe I would have gotten into one of them for grad school. And then maybe I wouldn't be, you know, this, this loser in my, uh, at the high school I was, I was teaching at. And, you know, this is a prestigious and famous high school. And when I would tell people I would teach there, they would say, wow. And I would just think, oh, if you, if only you knew about my buddy who's an Oxford Don right now, I have just have to deal with that, with that fact. And that, that, that's the psychological element that, that that's you're right. talking about. That's right. That's right. And, and whatever messages they may be getting from teachers like us and the books that we suggest they read, they're giving, they're getting an overwhelming set of messages from everywhere else, everywhere else, their peers and their parents and society at large and you know so they're really swimming up against a strong tide and some of them managed to pull themselves up on the shore you know despite it all 
Yeah. And, and I would say, I'm sure they're getting some of those messages from me. I mean, look, there's, you know, at one place, I think someone asked me, are we going to read anyone who didn't go to Harvard or something like that? I mean, I guess we had read, I guess we'd read Jonathan Edwards and, you know, Emerson and everything. Yeah. I was like, oh God. Well, it's, it's tell them there are only five schools back then. <laughs> that's, that's true. But did you say the thing that you were the direction you were going to go in? Uh, no, I didn't. So um, one of the most brilliant students I have ever had um, in that education unit where I taught you and, you know, I taught Pinker's uh, response to you. Um, yeah. I also taught some Montaigne and some Paolo Freira. I, I, I cannot say his name. And she wrote this amazing essay that said, you know, Ferreira is just absolutely ripe for Silicon Valley. You know, he's talking about ceaseless um, innovation and experimentation and there's no path and you have to make your own path and, you know, you find your way. And she said in this essay, this beautiful essay, I still have it, of course, what this, what, what Ferreira is talking about is the American education system for a certain group of people. And mm. it is, is, you know, it is considered too dangerous to give to everyone. I think she finally wrote like, and, and that includes this class. She was at this elite high school and she was like, here I am being taught to learn like Frera and I wouldn't be if I were at my home high school and I'm mm. gonna use these techniques to make myself a, a, a winner and go up the ladder. That was a, mm. that's a, that, that's the, the way that this narrative can be turned into the sort of Silicon Valley language of, of innovation. Find, find yourself and, and you know, every, every great company is the expression of the founder's true identity or, or, right. or something like that. You could have, right. and I bet they have quotes from Emerson on their walls. I bet they do. Right, I, I think you're right. That's a great point. I mean, that, that language from the 60s has been thoroughly co-opted. Um, what do you do about it? Well, you know, you have to go back to the sources and talk about what it really means, yeah. you know, and you actually read Walden and you're probably, <laughs> I mean, you might end up in Silicon Valley anyway, but you're going to know that it wasn't Walden that took you there. Yeah. I mean, as you just said, you know, I mean, they have Emerson on the wall, but uh, they have one sentence from Emerson on the wall. And one of the things that I've noticed, I haven't managed to find a way to write about this yet, but the kind of quotation mongering that especially the internet has, uh, has especially enabled, people love to post little nuggets on Facebook or it's their banner on Facebook or whatever. And it's completely decontextualized and inevitably repurposed for whatever people want to say <laughs> without actually any kind of real, I mean, you know, nobody actually reads those sources. Nobody who does that, I think, actually reads those sources and know what know what they actually mean. Yeah, I, I do. I, I I do think you're right. Um, I do think in that in that sense, for the most part, like that sort of Emerson quote on on the wall or Emily Dickinson or whatever, that is taking things out of context. But I I mean, I do very much fear though. You know. Um, that someone was telling me, I don't know if this is true, this was a kind of a conspiracy minded person that, you know, all the tech people have their kids in, you know, Waldorf schools or, right. or, or Montessori schools that, that this journey, this building, this enlightenment can be reserved for the wealthy. My sense is the tech people 
have presumably other people in laboratory lab schools and the other you know country day schools i don't i don't know the details on that but that makes a certain amount of sense to me this can be an elite education just as it was in ancient greece you know 10% of the people get this education and the other it, it's almost shocking one of the things that shocks me every day is that the elites are doing this to their children that that the top schools aren't run like Montessori schools. Um, mm. I don't know. I don't have a good. Well, because they because they think that this is uh, this is what you need to do. You need to go into the pressure cooker. Um, I don't know if Silicon Valley. I mean, I've heard those anecdotes, but you know, I mean, Montessori is is for grade school, so there are almost no Montessori high schools. So yeah. you could send your kid to a Montessori school for a few years and then put them in the pressure cooker. Um, whether, you know, I, 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 um, I am wary of conspiracy theories in general. No, but I mean, specifically <laughs> no, me because, um, because I think they can be misleading. I mean, even what seem like, for example, this idea that, uh, that you hear a lot that, you know, Republicans are against education because they want a, 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 a populace that can be easily fooled. I, I, I think, right. I think that the, the, the distance between the A and the B are, is much too short. And I think that, um, you know, society sort of has a ways of orienting itself unconsciously. It's an incredibly complex system. There's nobody really in charge. Uh, um, I think the main reason that people below the elite don't have access to this kind of education is simply that it's expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it requires a small teacher-student ratio. Um, it can, it, it's, it's, um, it often also requires that you not be responsible to public education assessment rubrics, you know, the, the tests that people teach to the test, teach to at public schools. And of course, you know, private school itself is expensive. Um, so I think that's the main reason. But, but, it, but it absolutely has this effect. I mean, um, there was a great article from, I think from all the way back in the eighties by a sociologist named Jean Anion. Um, I think I might mention it in the book and she's still around, but basically she went to like five, like middle schools, I think sort of in and around Newark, New Jersey at all different class levels. And she, she it's kind of a dry piece of sociology, but she details in a really, wonderful way how at each level students are being trained I think she calls it the hidden I think it's called the hidden curriculum of work um, students are being trained to occupy their their class position by the way they're treated as students and um, it's it's really interesting because there's even two different levels at the top there's the sort of creative upper middle class kids like maybe Montessori who go to you know they're going to go to Bard or something they're going to go to a liberal arts college and then there's like the CEO class of kids right. who are trained sort of in mastery and command. <laughs> um, but, but, but again, I mean, no one's, no, I don't think anyone has ever sat down and designed the system to look like that. It just ends up looking like that because of the expectations that everybody brings to it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, the, the, I, I do have some sympathy and you know i'll just delete this if you don't want to talk about this because this is a, oh, no, this that's is a right. this, well this is a dangerous topic so but here, here what i'm going to say i do have okay. some sympathy um because I, I ran into this so here's here's the anecdote when i was at the south carolina school 
the 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 poor schools at the north at the North Carolina high school they think UNC is is garbage because they can all get into it. The ones yeah. at the South Carolina school cannot get into UNC easily. It's roughly as hard to get into Duke as it is to get into UNC. They're pretty similar for an out of state student who is not very wealthy. Right. So they know what a prize UNC is. And one year, you know, some of the students, a lot of students applied to UNC in part because I, I recommended UNC as, a, as an option, at least if you're going to strive, strive to be at, you know, a public school with a great honors college rather than Duke, but going there yeah. is quite prestigious. And, God forbid. and <laughs> one year, I think every single one of the black students who I recommended apply to UNC got in. And yep. none of the white students did. And in that sense, it is a conspiracy. People sat in a room and said, we are, we've got a class of people we want. Now, the, the, the wanting of that class of people comes from the best of intentions. But I right. fear, I mean, this is, this is Richard Rorty's theory about Trump that he wrote long before, I mean, he died before Trump was elected, is that right. when they see, when whatever you want to call the people, white working class, real Americans, whatever you want to call them, they, they see there is a conspiracy against them. And I, I, I can't ar right. ar argue against that. There is a conspiracy right. against them, at least in favor of their black peers from those same right. communities. There's an even bigger conspiracy against black people, black kids who don't have parents who are doctors and lawyers and engineers. It's much worse, but affirmative action is a, a, a conspiracy in that sense. And it, these the black students and the white students were both Outraged. They were all in my office, not not wow. at the same time, not at the same time. Really? Outraged. Yeah, the white students were outraged that they had been conspired against, and the black students were outraged that the white students didn't recognize the need for social justice. And I had no answer for them because it seemed to me that it was all grotesque, and I didn't know how to respond to it. Yeah. No, I don't mind talking about this at all. I think it's complicated. I think you're right that it's grotesque. I think that affirmative action if we have it at all, should be based on class. A lot of, a lot of um, African-American students at elite colleges are from affluent backgrounds. A lot of students of African descent at elite colleges are not from African-American descent at all. They're immigrants, immigrant kids, Nigeria, wherever. Um, I think the main problem with affirmative action is that it's trying to correct a situation that needs to be corrected at the beginning of life, not when you get to be 18. Yeah. But I also see the incredible political damage it does. Um, and I have, a, I have a, an essay called On Political Correctness that came out in 2017. And I point out that by far the most underrepresented group at elite colleges are white working class and poor. I mean, basically, it's like about 40% of the country are white people who didn't go to college, yeah. or didn't finish college, 40%. And at these schools, they're in the low single digits because most of the poor students at these schools are not white. Now, I recognize the need to address historic racial injustice, for sure. The question is, how do you do it? Um, how do you do it effectively? Because it's not clear that, you know, affirmative action, but nothing else <laughs> has worked out that well. And then how do you do it in a way that's not going to create this horrifying political backlash, which is just going to end up burning everything down, everything that we've worked for? Yeah, I think so. I'll, I'll defend it, even though I don't want to, because I think I think you're right. I think it's damaging. I think it prevents 
the sort of solidarity that we would need to right. get something like a universal basic income. Right. Um, and, you know, when you look at the great programs that built, um, that built whatever, the middle class in this country, they all excluded Black people, especially. I mean, they excluded everyone that they were able to, especially in the South, but especially, you know, FDR and... Uh, well, less less LBJ, but even LBJ to a certain extent cut deals with Southern lawmakers to make the programs, you know, more more racist. But I see nothing wrong with those programs. Just run them again without the without excluding right. the people. Let's just let's just do that. Why why is that so hard? Well, I mean, I, I agree, but unfortunately, that's not where we are politically on the left. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean. I don't know that we need to talk about this. I think this has been talked about a lot, yes. but maybe it needs it needs to be talked about a lot that um, this left identitarianism that is doing everything it can to reify and essentialize racial categories is just, as you say, it's 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 destroying the possibility, it's precluding the possibility of the kind of working class solidarity that the Sanders campaign promised. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, uh, I, I, I despair of the Democratic Party's ability to learn lessons uh, until until at least the next horrible defeats that are inevitable. <laughs> but I mean, we should know already. We saw in 2020 and now in 2021, never even mind the white working class. Um, Trump actually got a few smaller percentage of the white vote in 2020. Um, Democrats don't understand how profoundly they are alienating themselves from communities of color and not just Asian Americans who feel really deeply cheated by affirmative action programs that discriminate against them by the desire to eliminate gifted and talented programs in places like New York City, but also black communities who are, who are as a whole more moderate than white Democrats and are voting for people like Eric Adams. Yeah. You're, you, you're absolutely right, Bill, that we probably don't need to discuss this because it has been discussed so often. And I, I, I'm the one who said I'm going to try and avoid politics and then, and then went right there. But you're, but you're right. It does, it is, it's a technocratic solution, a top-down elite institution solution That's right. to an enormous grassroots problem. Yeah. And it does, I, I agree with you. It, it makes the, the political imagination of grassroots solidarity much, much harder to accomplish. Um, yeah, I mean, the truth is I don't mind that we spend a few minutes talking about it because I feel like on in left, in progressive spaces, it's not talked about enough. Yeah. I mean, there's still this overwhelming consensus <clears throat> of, the, of the liberal elite chattering class that refuses, you know, the Virginia gubernatorial election, well, they're just all racists. Like, no, something more is going on than that. You need to pay attention to this. Yeah, I'm as I've as I've gone on this journey farther on the left and away from my sort of te technocratic. I mean, I came of age with the my, the first presidential election I voted for. I voted uh, was was George W. Bush versus Kerry. So uh, Obama coming was just this huge. Yeah. I mean, I barely remembered the Clinton presidency, and what I mostly remembered was that he was for abortion, and that was bad because of uh, because of my upbringing. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I remember the Clinton administration quite well, but I certainly didn't have a, a policy grasp yeah, yeah, of yeah. it. And, and as I, you know, as I talk with these people, I mean, the, 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 the younger people, the students, I think in a lot of ways are better than the older people, but they say basically something like, you know what, Dr. Culbertson, 
yeah, you're absolutely right. But don't say that anywhere. You'll get canceled. Um, or, you know, you sound like a Republican until you say that the solution is to smash the capitalist class. And I don't I don't know what to right. I don't know what to say to that. If I'm if I'm not allowed to if I'm not allowed to say this, where do I go? Which is why I you know, have adopted the label anarchist. I'm against that kind of technocratic policy. And I don't think I can be called right wing. No, I don't think you can either. But I mean, here we are. We're, we're talking about it. And I think the more people talk about it. Um, the more people can talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you probably saw, uh, you, you may want in the time we have left to, to open up a new topic, but I mean, you probably saw in the news, I think today or yesterday, that there were 100,000 opioid overdose deaths in the first 12 months of the pandemic from April to April. Over 100,000. And, and um, I don't hear people on the left talking about this. And it's just, it's just, I mean, because you know what? I mean, quite frankly, they don't care about those people. And Rorty it's disgusting. Says, Rorty says until there is a Department of Trailer Park Studies next to the Department of African-American Studies, those people will never feel welcome in, in the elite. Um, which, uh, you know, yeah. Rorty was a funny guy. Also, a lot of people who knew him didn't, I never, I never knew Rorty, but uh, I'm, I'm too young. But. What was, what is that in? What, what can I look at? Oh, it's, it's in this book he wrote called uh, Achieving Our Country. Um, oh, okay. I've Achieving heard that title, Our Country. Yeah. yeah. So in, in that book, this will be for my listeners because they haven't heard me talk about it yet, I don't think. In that book, it was published in 1997. Rorty says that as long as the you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers, et cetera, and professors are on the side of the billionaire class, but in the name of, you know, what we would now call diversity or affirmative action, eventually right. the white working class is going to figure out that so-called left-wing politics doesn't work for them. They're going to elect a strong man. That strong man will be a fake strong man, probably from the billionaire class. He will promise <laughs> wealth and power to the white working class. He will not deliver it. He will deliver all power to the billionaire class. And then he'll go ahead and make everything far more racist, sexist, and homophobic, which was precisely what the left was trying to prevent when they made the deal with the CEOs in the first place. And he wrote this in 1997, Bill. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, it's incredible. It's right. It's incredible. right. It's right there. And there yeah. was, during the Trump era, people were talking about it. And now no one is talking about it in, anymore. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it, though. We're talking yeah. about it, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I do want to open up a new topic. I don't know if we have time for this. Sure, but I want, sure. I want to talk about uh, artisanship and the village. Because I, the village and artisanship don't come off very well in... Uh, in the death of the creative class, I don't. The death of the artist. The death of the artist. I'm sorry. Yes, not. I, I just conflated you with Richard Florida, so I'm very, I'm very right. sorry about that. Which is the rise of the creative class, <laughs> yes. right? No, that's totally fine. Um, the village and the artisan don't come off well. No, that's 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 not what I'm saying. I mean, th there's certain uh, uh, disingenuous techno utopian or uh, art tech uh, techno utopian arguments about why we should feel good about what's happened to the class of artists and other creative people in the age of the internet. Um, what's happened to them and what the death of the artists is about is that they're becoming impoverished. 
Mm-hmm. It's becoming harder and harder for them to make a living. Not that it was easier before, but it's coming harder and harder because the internet platforms are basically diverting all the revenue to themselves. But, you know, there was all this, I mean, I don't even know that people talk say this anymore, but back 10 years ago when there was a lot of techno-utopianism, it's like, oh, we're going back to the village, you know, artisanal production, and isn't it going to be great? It's like, we're not going back to the village, okay? We're not literally going back to the village. So it's just some dumb metaphor that you're throwing at this to try to understand it or not understand it, to try to not think about it. And I mean, artisanal production is great. I'm not against it. Uh, I think I'm more, I think I'm more scornful of amateur production. Yeah. Which is, which is also part of their arguments. Like, oh, amateurs are better than professionals. The word amateur comes from the Latin word that means to love, so it's better. <laughs> amateurs do it for love. Professionals do it for money. Like, you don't understand a single thing about why artists do what they do. You don't understand a single thing about art. Um, there's no way that you would prefer an amateur to a professional, either in the creation of art or certainly in anything else. Um, people get better at things when they do them full time. And if you're so in love with the idea of doing things for love instead of money, why don't you go first? Harvard professor affiliated with the Berkman Center, the, the, whatever that's called. Uh, Yochai Blankler is one of them. You know, he talks about this. Well, I'm guessing that Harvard pays you, but maybe you would do a better job if they didn't pay you. So that's, that's a small part of what I talk about in that book. And I think that, that maybe is what you were referring to. Oh, I'm, I, I, I am referring it because I am referring to it though, because it doesn't come up too many times, but it does come up like almost once per, per chapter. And uh, I'm, right. so I'm, I'm there's, there's this, uh, go ahead, sorry. Well, I, I, listen, I'm not against amateur production in the arts or anywhere else. I think there are a lot of people who do the arts music say or painting as amateurs and i think that that's great for them i really do it's just that the term amateur enters the argument when as follows silicon valley has taken all the money the apologists for silicon valley say that's fine in fact it's good it's better because it's better for an artist not to work for money meaning that professional artists are being forced back into the status of amateurs. That's the problem I have with amateurism. And I point out, listen, you probably can spend several hours a day consuming artistic creations, whether it's music or television, or you read novels, whatever it is, ask yourself what percentage of that stuff was created by amateurs. And it's not like there isn't a ton of amateur production there literally over a million books self-published every year. How many of those are you actually reading? Probably not very many. So don't bullshit yourself and don't bullshit us that somehow a world, not where there are amateurs, but where there are only amateurs is going to be a better world. That's the point. So I could not, I mean, I could not, I could not agree with that more. I, I do want to go back to the village, though, or as it was called in the 20th century, the neighborhood. I mean, this is okay. this is Mumford's great insight is a city. I think in America, we have a pretty bad image of a city because of Manhattan and because of the island and everything. When you go to Tokyo, when you go to Rome, um, they're, they're, they're big villages. 
but ev- mm-hmm. there's there's villages. Paris is like this also. You can call it a arrondissement, but it's people say it about Chicago. Yeah, Chicago, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is all is all villages, and yeah. it's wonderful. And Ebenezer Howard's vision, the the Garden Cities book, where he says, you know, you can have a big village in the center that's maybe five times as big as the other villages, but looks absolutely nothing like um, Manhattan. And then have a combination of agriculture and forests and have these village and connect them with trains. And I mean, people have done it in various places and it, and it works. There was just an article in the New York Review of Books about, uh, you know, uh, the, the garden city in, I guess, Queens and how. Right. Sunnyside Gardens. Yes. And how wonderful it is. And everyone and everyone loves it. And so when people ask me, Graham, you're against modernity. How can you hate modernity? And I say, I don't. I don't hate modernity if uh, I don't talk usually about the village. I do talk about craft and artisanship, but what I'm looking for is, is neighborhoods, is communities that are knit together you know, to, and knit, knit together within the community and knit together within the wider community. And you could have had, you could have the local blacksmith, right? Which would, I think now would be like the local bike repair person. And you can mm-hmm. have the local fucking poet too. And those villages can, could more or less sustain each other. I think done done properly so when you so this is what i yeah, when, yeah. When, when you know we, there's no village forget artisanship we can't no, go I, back to the past i didn't but again right. i didn't say forget artisanship i said You're, don't yes. glorify the amateur above the professional precisely and i'm when i say we're not going back to the village i mean as a total you know i mean like people will say oh the troubadours didn't get paid for the music it's like <laughs> we're not going to be troubadours yeah. again okay it was a completely different world but your vision um you know it sounds a lot like Portland, Oregon, where I live, mm-hmm. but only when I first moved here or first encountered the place 20 years ago, and then I moved here 13 years ago. Unfortunately, Portland is getting flooded with money from California and it's yeah. changed a lot. But that kind of vibe of, I mean, famously Portland artisanal culture and, you know, neighborhoods and, uh, uh, you know, small businesses and um and it and it was a wonderful vibe um and it, and 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 it was the result partly of some very smart planning choices you know portland um uh year i think back in the 70s uh passed laws to prevent uh, urban sprawl so the the farmland and forests are right outside the city mm-hmm. maybe there's well there's like maybe one ring of suburbs right um two rings in some places but 20 minutes away and um, and then development is, you know, sort of focused back inward. So the, you don't, you don't end up those with those like donut shaped cities in the Midwest, you know, that are shattered and empty like Detroit and, yeah. and for many, many, many blocks. Uh, so, so it can be done, but it, it needs to be done with smart public policy. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, one of the, this is what I wrote my dissertation. My dissertation was on, late 19th, early 20th century city public policy, how that played out and also to a certain extent how novelists represented it because I was in the English department and I wasn't going to get away with not talking about novelists, but I mean, Dreiser and Wharton and Howells, but also um, Jacob Lees, Jacob Rees and Olmsted, Jane Mm -hmm. Adams, John Dewey, Mm -hmm. all of these, Mm -hmm. all of these people. And, uh, I was also reading a lot of, you know, Richard Florida at the time and uh, Edward Glazer and a few of the others, 
you know, creative classy type people. I told you this was my Obama period. Um, but as I've, as I've emerged and really, I mean, this comes from Graeber. Uh, I definitely wanted to ask you about Graeber, but uh, I ran out of time. Um, as, as I emerge from that technocratic moment, I, I look back at what Jane Addams was envisioning and it was a sort of village of artisans as much mm-hmm. as possible artisans as opposed to uh, industrial production and with, she didn't have a vision that didn't include the wealthy because she was wealthy, which when she went and talked to Tolstoy, Tolstoy was like, you you are enslaving people by being by being wealthy, you are a monster. So then she started baking baking bread once a week um, because then she because then she was you know an artisan. Um, uh, but this this vision seems to me compatible with the technology we have and the world that that we want to have. So I'm telling everyone, oh, we can turn our cities into sort of 21st century villages, and not only is it possible, it's been done in America before. And that's why I think I responded to when you said we're not going back to villages. I was like, okay. but Bill, I'm telling everyone we can go back to villages. Okay. okay, if you put it like that, that's different. Sure, Okay. sure. Um, it was great to talk to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'll let you know when the episode is, is posted. And uh, I open with this, but I'll say it again. Your work has meant um, so much to me and, and my teaching. And this was just a, a dream come true. Wow, that's really nice to hear. I'm, it's really nice to hear. Good luck with this. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Great talking to you. Well, that's that for my interview with Bill Derezowitz. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to check out Bill's website, billderezowitz.com, for much, much more from him. I also recommend his most recent book, which we didn't talk about as much, but that's where the conversation for The Village came from, um, this book, The Death of the Artist. In- interviewing Bill was a dream come true, and I will consider that my uh, my Christmas present to myself. I am doing two Christmas episodes in the next two weeks, so... December 15th and December 22nd, you'll be getting Christmas Everyday Anarchism. First up is an interview with Professor Ruth Kenna about Santa Claus and anarchism. If you're interested, I will have a link to her famous article, An Anarchist Guide to Christmas, in the show notes. It was a fantastic interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it. While you wait for that, please keep in touch. Remember, send me questions, comments, thoughts at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, I need your support. You can leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. That's a great help. The biggest thing you can do to support the show is go to everydayanarchism.com and sign up to make a monthly contribution. It is your contributions that will keep the show alive in 2022 and beyond. All that's left to say is the music which you're about to hear is by David Hill.